This episode of Hit the Lights is brought to you in partnership with Sparks. Sparks is the only magazine for UK electrical students and apprentices and also helps support the next generation through annual competitions such as Sparks Learner of the Year and new for 2023 Sparks Female Skills Competition. Check out Sparks' Instagram at Sparks Magazine UK to learn more and for a one-stop page for all news, memes and more from the electrical industry. Welcome to another edition of Hit the Lights podcast. I've got a very special guest with me today. I've got Alan Montgomery. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you, Gary. Uh, thank you very much for, for asking me as a guest on the podcast. Um, it's really my pleasure. First time newbie, so uh, <laughs> bear with me. But yeah, thank you very much for uh, for the privilege to be asked on. No, it's a pleasure. Obviously, um, you, you've got an interesting career and history and journey, so It'd be great to to dive in and and you know in, inquisitively uh, get some answers out of you about how you found your journey and career to date. Yeah, I think interesting maybe is <laughs> one way to describe it. But we're all yeah. interesting to ourselves, so it's good. I'm sure. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, so, what was your journey into the electrical industry? How did it start for you? So yeah, initially uh, I probably like a number of people didn't really know what I wanted to do when I left school. Um, I ended up staying on uh, for in Scotland, which will be fifth year. I'm not sure how that equates to English education. So fifth year at high school Um, and ended up taking craft and design higher. So had in my mind the intention that I wanted to be a joiner. Um, With no real kind of, you know, reason or direction for that, but um, almost kind of stumbled into being an electrician um the teacher uh who i became you know fairly friendly with ironically as we got to the near the end of high school knew a local uh small electrical company who was looking for an apprentice and said rather than me milling around the staff room and annoying him could i not benefit from going and getting a, a an interview or an attitude test and at least give me some experience of that as I entered into the world of work. So I relatively loosely thought it was a good idea. And yeah, along I went and um, did my best, as you would do, took it as a bit of a learning curve. Um, And ultimately, long story short, a few days later, I got a phone call from the uh, small business owner to offer me the job. Um, So then it was okay, but I wanted to be a joiner. And, you know, that thought process going around your head saw sense, I suppose, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Don't want to offend the joiners here. But, so, That's right, they're not so, listening, it's fine. No, okay. <laughs> I'm sure. Um, I'm sure they'll be listening to some other wooden topic. But, um, the uh, yeah, so I uh, had some discussions with my family and stuff um, and some other kind of friends and, and yeah, decided to, to pursue this as what, what then became really apparent that it was a, an excellent opportunity um, to, to go and, and, and enter into being an electrician. So, yeah, that formed part of most of my apprenticeship, to be fair. Um, uh, SGIIB in Scotland, or SEC, the Electrical Charitable Training Trust, put you, put you through your apprenticeship. So I got some support, attended a local college, 
Um, and unfortunately, towards the end uh, of that kind of first step in my career, the a small local company uh, ceased trading. So I had to go and join another local company within a 10 sort of mile radius, if you like, um, doing very similar uh, sort of contracting uh, types of work. So largely domestic, a bit of commercial, um, sort of shop fitting and, and sort of idea. But that was mostly how I'd spent my early apprenticeship was was doing domestic and commercial, ventured in a little to uh, doing CCTV on train lines. So did a bit of work on, on, on rail track, but it was only for the purposes of CCTV installation. Um, but yeah, to go and finish my career with a, and complete my apprenticeship with a, another local firm. So it delayed it a number of months as such, but um, didn't really impact other than time on, on my journey to become a qualified electrician. So yeah, that was that was step one. Yeah. <laughs> where, where did that take you then? So you obviously done a, a time served apprenticeship. Um, did you um, manage to stay with that company for a period of time before um, you know running projects yourself? Yeah. So 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 again, um, because the work was kind of similar, um, and I suppose it wasn't until later in my life I realised that um, I sort of like to be involved in something in a bit more detail. So as you said, projects and, um, you know, taking the lead on on, on, on managing things. Um, I kind of felt Luca was maybe ready for a change. I also um, met my future wife around about that same time and uh, ended up getting married and setting up my own business as an electrical contractor within a year uh, at 22. Um, so... That's quite, uh, quite, quite a bold move. Yeah, which one? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know your wife, so I'm not okay, going to. <laughs> okay, okay, shall we say my marriage has lasted longer? I've just had my 25th wedding anniversary. So, um, yeah, um, so I, I came around really through an opportunity um, through through the first company um, that, that was no longer trading. Some of the CCTV work that, that we did, the, the local company, was looking for a, a contractor to carry on with the work and an opportunity really presented itself. And it was more really about timing and opportunity. And, you know, they had known the work that I had done and said, would you not consider going self-employed? And, you know, my, my dad being a real advocate of self-employment, he's done it a couple of occasions in his life. I actually owe him a lot about the, and uh, in, in my career, about the early steering that he, that he gave me and advice about being self-employed and so on. Sorry, just made that made that decision, and yeah, that was kind of where I started um, my my self employment uh, at at 22. So went and got a small business loan uh, from the bank, bought a new van, um, got some new tools, and on day one, I'm sitting in the van with myself listening to the radio, no job or, or no no work, no project, and uh, and you know all of this debt. However, it only lasted a day. Um, I had some work for the second day, and then began to grow. Uh, locally, um, some some previous contacts that I had, um, and obviously, you hope that when you become self-employed, that your name and the you know your work speaks for itself. Um, so I didn't was fortunate enough in, in my career, which was almost 13 years of being self-employed, never really to advertise. And I think word of mouth is a is a fantastic free way of advertising. If you leave a good job, if you communicate clearly with customers, albeit 
you know, I'll be the first amongst others to admit I didn't always get that right. But it's better having the intent and failing than not having the intent at all, you know, to ensure that you, you communicate clearly. So try to kind of maintain that throughout my self-employment uh, time uh, that, you know, you have to treat the customers with the respect that they deserve um, and, and and leave a good job. And, and certainly that, that, that did stand me in good stead. And in hindsight, if I can give anybody advice, on self-employment, I've actually got a really good friend who went on and did a business degree when he left school. And he said to me that actually, once you know business, the type of business that you do doesn't necessarily matter, but you'll always make money if you know business. I went into self-employment just being an electrician and I'm listening to some of your podcasts previously and I know I share that same journey with a number of people. I probably made some maybe financial mistakes, um, you know, talking about VAT and tax and just not really knowing what the right method was and, you know, employing staff and, you know, all of that type of thing, employment law, you learn on the job and almost learn from your mistakes. Whereas, you know, and, and that's not easy, especially if you're an electrician and there's the opportunity to go and make some money. That's always the, the dangling carrot, isn't it? And the, you know, the opportunity to go and make that. But, um, I would never discourage anybody from being self-employed. Um, you know, I think it's a it's a great um, step to make in, in in your career. Would I do it differently if I did it again? Probably. What What do you think you'd do differently? Um, so I suppose maybe just a little on what I touched on uh, there. Um, learn so much more about what it's like to actually run a business. You know, I was more along the lines of equipping myself to do the job. But and I had those attributes, obviously, being a, a qualified electrician and, you know, understood how to work safely and use appropriate tools and things like that. Um, uh, and, and obviously had the contacts to, to get the work, but the didn't really understand the difference between a sole contractor and a limited company, for example, um, you know, you could be, a, a, as I say, a sole trader um, and pay a different tax, or, you know, so so all of that stuff that you had to learn. And then I went a bit later on and employed an apprentice and employed further staff a bit later on and had other vehicles. So um, I, I think the attributes of business, I should say, learning on the hop or ad hoc as you're moving on, you know, if you make a mistake, sometimes it can be a costly one. So maybe, you know, and I know that there's, you know, I think ECA and I think Select in Scotland do a bit of that support for their members to, you know, make sure that, that what they need out with the scope of actually doing the job is provided for them or an avenue or a channel. I didn't really have that and wasn't a member initially of these federations, so so didn't know that. So so kind of learned learned off the on the hop if you like yeah do you think if you'd have made that step a bit later then maybe having had a maybe an opportunity for mentoring or something like that uh, absolutely yeah, yeah you, you might yeah. have you might have succeeded further than and, you, you maybe and i think sometimes as well maybe um you know at 22 you always think that you're probably more mature than you are <laughs> you know, I'm getting married. I, I've got a mortgage. You know, I, I have debt. Do you know that is that the sign of is that the sign of maturity? Maybe don't know. But I think as 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 life's gone on, yeah, I've 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 learned a lot. And you know, the best way 
not the only way, but the best way to learn sometimes is from making a mistake and you're less likely to make it again. So, um, yeah, it's not a negative for self-employment by any manner of means. Um, all I'd say is, you know, do your due diligence, recognise where you sit uh, in regards to the other stuff that goes on if you're employing staff, be aware of employment law, you know, and and, and so on. No, 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 definitely. I'm, I'm a big advocate as well, you know, jumping in the deep end. And, and giving it a go. Um, you, yeah. you, mentioned, you mentioned obviously that um, your, your marriage has outlasted that business. So how, how what, what happened with that business in the end? Um, was it something you decided to wrap up? Yeah, um, and I suppose um, people have different reasons for either changing career or or different reasons. And there was a real reflective moment where I tried to almost do a bit of comparison about someone who was directly employed with a company and then progressed their career through that company to develop themselves, but also to, to develop their roles. It's one thing I would say that maybe, and, and I don't know, maybe this is just a personal view, but maybe self-employment doesn't really give you that. There's a sense of achievement and, you know, almost, this might be the wrong thing to say, that you've arrived you know, you've got your own business. There's an element of kudos, reputational kind of, you know, uh, positivity that comes with. And, and sometimes that's other people's impression of of, of that rather than, than your impression. Um, and I, I, I so there's a couple of reasons I felt I wanted a change. One was that, you know, I, I almost was doing the job parrot fashion. We'll talk, maybe talk a wee bit about competency later on. It was almost that. Um, consciously competent or unconsciously competent, sorry, um, that you know what you're doing. You've done it that long. You know what you're doing. You're not really having to think about it. Um, you understand why you're doing it. But, you know, I, I felt I was needing kind of a bit of a, a bit of a change, something more. I ended up mid self-employment time also going on and doing an HNC at night school to feed a little bit about, because I didn't do that after I finished my apprenticeship. I only got the level three, the grade card and so on. Um, but uh, certainly um, the, the sort of career advancement, if you like, was I was struggling to really think about where I could go either during or after self-employment. And it could be more people, more contracts, you know, more vehicles. I don't know how you measure success when you're self-employed, but, you know, in a way, um, I, I felt I, I, I had more to give and I wanted to, to, to give more. But but coupled with that, I think adversity at times has got a habit of kind of shaping and moulding your life um, and, and sometimes the decisions that you make in life. And I'm probably, you know, not unlike any anyone else that... Um, success comes with a high demand for your time. And I think the work-life balance for me at that point felt a little bit out of line and that probably came more to the fore by starting a family. So my daughter, you know, was born, um, you know, during that time, I've got to have a son as well. Um, both my and my wife's parents had life-changing illnesses or accidents and we lost three grandparents in a short space of time. And, uh, also lost a, a valued colleague to a sudden heart attack. Um, so it really just made me evaluate what was important um, about giving up of your time, because time something that, you know, you can spend loads of it, but you can never get it back. And, you know, I, I, I wanted to be a good father, a good husband, as well as being successful. Um, but, you know, I think I felt 
some of some of that was being compromised by the amount of time I was having to give up to running a business and you know and I'm sure a lot of people will resonate with, with that it's not the fact that you go and do a job for eight hours you, you take you know a lot of phone calls during the day you've got to do invoicing you've got to do um, payroll quotations and that can eat into your nights and your weekends and you know things like that so it was almost like a I, I, I might use this more than once. I don't. I don't want to call it a light bulb moment. It seems quite, you know, cheesy and corny to use that term. But however, um, I think uh, just that realization that I'm a bit more mature now. I've got different responsibilities, and yeah, um, I, I felt I, I felt I wanted a, a change in career. So so yes, I made the decision to look for uh, something different. So what was that something different? Eventually, <laughs> let me see this. <laughs> Eventually, I moved into uh, education. My immediate lifestyle change from self-employment to um, employment, if you wish, to give me nights and evenings back and time with the family, was to become an assistant site manager with a major house builder. Um, and then, unfortunately, um, after a large number of years he'd been relatively successful in self-employment. Um, I had a little over 13 or 14 months as gameful employment and was made redundant because there was a housing crash due to a global recession. So it was like, I've made this lifestyle change now. Um, where does that go from here? So um, I, the education part is important because when I did my HNC, um, I really respected and spent quite a bit of time listening to and being mentored in a way by one of the key lecturers um, and I probably have to mention him because I owe him a lot in my career, uh, uh, Francis Binney. Um, he was a great role model and a great encourager and always wanted the best out of his students and, and, and out of you and he, he kind of at that point had kind of highlighted look, you know, I can see something in you. I think you would be great in education. Uh, have you considered that as a career? And, you know, really, really enjoyed mentoring. Had an apprentice when I was self-employed as well. I felt that that's such an important thing. If you have a skill set that someone else hasn't or or education or knowledge or or whatever, and you can impart that or share that with somebody else, that that that's important to me and I think probably a number of others as well. Um, so so I felt kind of being gravitated to or drawn towards that type of career where I could give something back. And um, I did a bit of, during that uh, kind of late self-employment time and, and interim time, support at a local college just on an ad hoc basis to support apprentices in the workshop when they were short of staff. It wasn't regular work. I couldn't base a full-time job on it. But then... I again was was fortunate to be um, uh, offered the chance of of employment in in, in 2011 as a, a training consultant at Fourth Valley College, which felt right, and it was delivering electrical safety courses. So it was using the skills that I had gained, uh, and then to be able to impart that knowledge and, and bestow that knowledge. Um, it turned out it, it ended up being the first of two spells I had there, but. I went on to teach wiring regulations. It would have been the 17th edition then when I started the electricity at work regulations courses, pat testing as it, as it was known then. It's it's had a, 
a rebrand and a reaffirmation that it should be called something else now. We don't call it back testing anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's probably where I really began to start my journey with Compex. Um, uh, Fort Valley College was is one of the number of licensed centres that deliver uh, Compex training. So that was a uh, electrical safety, if you like, um, training for hazardous areas. So did, had you had any opportunities or experience up to that point working within, um, you know, hazardous areas for, for installations or was <clears> that a completely a, a left field turn? Uh, I would say largely yes, um, largely yes. I had worked in a manufacturing industry before for a short time, um, supporting uh, maintenance activities uh, and it made uh manufactured sort of rail rail track um so but it was manufacturing industry uh, there there was dust there in effect and and at that point in my career i would have said well that dust is hazardous without actually really knowing what it meant but just from a point of view that if it gets up your nose it will make you sneeze rather than you know it may be potentially leading to an explosion so yeah probably the biggest part in my introduction to Compex at that point in my career um, was, was yeah, very much that. It, it goes on and talks about um, a zoning concept. And obviously, those of us that are familiar with the wiring regulations, my understanding of the zoning concept at that point was zones in a bathroom and where you can fit a, you know, a light or a fan or a, you know, so it was a real, a great introduction, but a real steep, steep learning curve. So how how did you facilitate that that learning curve then? Did you um you you had to undertake your own training whilst um I'm, I'm assuming basically very, while you were delivering the, the very much part. so very much so it was like juggling uh, a couple of balls in a way uh, the, the the college and the defence were 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 fantastic they were really supportive they were really great um and I. I comfortably felt I was occupationally competent to deliver the wiring regulations courses and you know Pat Tessa had had a lot of experience in that but I must admit I'd probably say I've learned more about the regulations by teaching it than actually my career using it which is which is a really interesting point um but yeah they they, they were really supportive in my journey so uh, there is a recognized uh, learning journey that Compex ask of those who go on and teach it which is part of that journey. But also I was afforded some time to go and work with a local um, petrochemical site. Uh, and that was part of my journey. So I spent a bit of time uh, down there also seeing at first hand how they would manage sort of installation and inspection. I had to clearly um, immerse myself in the standards that surrounded that. So I'd spent a bit of time in the wiring regulations and uh, previous to that, obviously being a contractor, you, you have to, um, not to probably the detail that you need for going and teaching it. Maybe you should, but certainly um, uh, that was, but but this time moving into the, the, the complex realm, the, the sweetie standards that go with that was a, and, and, and don't get me wrong, there were a number of parallels, but also a number of real um, unique subtleties that, that, obviously made that area different. So yeah, that journey probably took me somewhere between nine months and a year to be qualified and feel confident to teach it. I had to go through obviously Compex's approval process, which 
which which is theirs and, and for any instructor assessor goes through that process they do that that's part of it but also having the confidence confidence in your own ability and confidence to to be able to teach what, what effectively was a new subject matter um sometimes you're harder on yourself with something like that aren't you no yeah definitely and when when it's a a new field of expertise i can understand why you'd want to be on extra on the ball don't you because it's not as ingrained into your day-to-day thinking i think what i would say um is that 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 learning for me about hazardous areas gary has never stopped I think the subject matter is so vast and it's almost like if you go looking down a rabbit hole for something else, you find another half a dozen rabbit holes. <laughs> it's it's the way that the standards are written sometimes. It's the, the, the technical, you know, nuances that, that are required maybe for certain aspects of that. So um, it's been something that has been actually an enjoyable experience learning so much more about um, you know, not just learning what I need to learn to be able to train and deliver the courses for for, for technicians and, and engineers and so on, but for my own understanding, um, it's 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 been really great. So yeah, really probably since since that time, since 2011, um, I I've been more more immersed in in, in those those standards than six seven six seven one. What what some of the challenges in the or, or the differences <coughs> I suppose in the challenges between delivering you know, BS7671 compared to BS60079. What, 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 what's the challenges in terms of what you need to convey to the students or even the students themselves? Yeah, so, I mean, I can probably take one aspect out of that for you, um, but it's an interesting one, as I say. I, what I've probably taken away from my journey becoming a, a, a trainer and an assessor for electrical safety courses and and indeed complex is for me to be credible if you like um i felt that i've had to take the journey myself so i've sat as a student i've gone through the journey so i've probably felt a lot of what they're feeling you know imposter syndrome i'm here you know i don't really understand this um and looking at the pinch points and saying well where can where can you go wrong where are the areas that you can maybe fall short so so, so that part, you know, for me is is valuable, and I'd still continue to to try and have those conversations. But would also encourage anybody who's going on to do any training, whatever the subject matter is, if you can either take that journey as a learner or go on that journey with the learner, then it'll help you understand what they're going through and can maybe almost preempt some of the questions that they're going to have. But the in regards to um, the the differences between the hazards this area there's one in particular that quite often stands out and 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 it's normally just as you said the comparison between the the 7671 and the 679 which is the standard for hazardous areas um uh, intrinsic safety is a, is a, is a part of you know instrumentation um uh, and it's it's a key part of most complex courses it's a key part of installations and inspections that form part of 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 hazardous areas so i mean instrumentation and control is clearly a specific discipline in its own right and got a, a broad scope of concept 
And I broadly understood from when doing my HNC earlier uh, and, and my career around the principles of pressure, temperature and flow didn't really mean much to me then other than the, a means to an end for, for completing a course. Couldn't apply it to a job I was doing, but 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 understood it for the for the part of part of the course. But by by immersing myself in the in the subject matter, um and it took me into a couple of the standards in 679, in particular part 11 and part 25, that talk about intrinsic safety. It goes on to talk about the concept. So it's a, a system. It talks about the documentations. It talks about how do you verify how do you verify intrinsic safety. So it's a basic concept. It's still a circuit. You know, we speak about an electrical circuit, whether it's 230 volts or or whatever. Um, but this one. The basic concept, it feeds a field device, it needs a number of elements to work, such as a power supply, a safety barrier, you know, as we said, a field device and cabling, but it's an energy limiting concept. So it works at normally, as we would recognise, extra low voltage, maybe 24 volts and, and low current. So obviously, because it's got that low voltage and low current, it's, it's called and named intrinsically safe. So for me, coming from that electrical background, and obviously the fact that this element of the 679 standards were different, they, they weren't really discussed in, in 7671. Um, as, as I said, I, I really had to kind of, you know, immerse myself in, in that subject and most electricians, and I counted myself with that in my early journey, who attend a complex course struggled with that kind of new concept. So um, it was to try and then put it across in a way that they would understand the subject matter the subject matter so sometimes you can't dilute it because if you do you dilute it and you, you miss the point or or you know lose an important safety message so um one example as i said of, of how they compared was was just that you know the intrinsic safety piece we had to put in a language that because i was one of them most electricians would understand when attending a complex course yeah no that's, that's a really interesting example you've given there <clears throat> Um, in terms of your, your training journey, then I understand you got to go to Africa as well to do a little bit of training over there. What was that like and, and what did that entail? Wow, yeah, so that was in, that was in uh, January 2016. Um, and I suppose now if we look back and, you know, we've all probably had a number of, of our COVID vaccinations and, and in some cases probably not thought twice about it. That was my first experience of, of actually carrying a vaccination folder and feeling like a pin cushion, you know, I had to get a number of these vaccinated yellow fever and and so on for for travelling. So um, that was an interesting experience, but certainly it, it was it was amazing to be able to go to a country I'd never been to before. So this was this was Ghana, um, and it came around at that point. I was you know employed by Fourth Valley. I was delivering a complex course, and a candidate attended who lived locally in Glasgow, but worked for an employer out in in, in Ghana. Um, and he applied himself fantastically well on the course, really grasped the concept and the message of what the course was trying to achieve, understood um, the competency requirements and saw a gap in his own workforce. So in a way, we started dialogue. That's how it came about. We had a couple of further meetings and then, um, you know, I, I was able to, uh, came to fruition, able to go out and teach a, a Compex Foundation course it was. So this this is really the kind of uh, first 
entry requirement, if you like, a, a, a first pass at understanding the concepts of hazardous area. Um, we are a number of uh, nationals, uh, local nationals, and some expats over two sessions. Um, it was quite strange because uh, it was delivered in a hotel, but it was in a in a proper you know room in a hotel, but it was delivered in a hotel, yeah. uh, and their working day started on a Sunday. So it was Sunday, Sunday and Monday was the, the first couple of days of training. So it was a little over a week that I was there. But yeah, it gave them a, a core underpinning knowledge and an introduction to installation skills. In some parts of the world, there isn't the same uh, vocational type qualification and there isn't the same four year apprenticeship. So in a way, this was to introduce probably more the basic concept of hazardous areas, underpinning knowledge, competency, and effectively the consequences of getting it wrong. So um, it was, yeah, a really, really great experience. I was, was going to ask, so in terms of the installations then, um, what was it? Was it oil related? Yeah, it, it was. Um, it was a, a major oil company and and their contractors. So they, they had a... a FPSO, a floating production storage um, vessel, if you like. So it's like an oil rig, but it's on a ship kind of idea. Um, and they, they extract oil from uh, just off the, the coast uh, in in Ghana. So um, yeah, it was it was for for that type of industry. And uh, again, to to introduce the the concept of of competency and what that looked like. I mean, that sounds really interesting. My initial question was going to be, obviously, you're delivering to British standards. So is that something that they're working to as well? And again, do you know, it's a really pertinent point, Gary, um, that in, in the UK, there, there are there are probably two types of people that say, look, our standards are, are so strict and you can't do anything without getting bashed by the HSE stick. Uh, or, you know, there's other people which, you know, I'm probably one of them that I think that, that actually, look, we've got it right. Uh, I don't think you can compromise on safety. And, you know, um, I think that the, you know, we do beat ourselves up sometimes, but, you know, the UK has got a, a real strong ethos around health and safety and what the, you know, statutory and non-statutory regulations look like that support that. That's not the case, unfortunately, in, in certainly emerging countries. Um, uh, and and maybe different parts of the world. So the I think the link came around the the oil company um, is I'm sure um, Southern Irish owned, and I think there's a number of expats that 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 were you know working there and and using the the, the British standards. So an absence of having in-country qualifications, you have to benchmark safety against something. Mm. And and yeah, you're quite right. I think it was, uh, there were some references to the UK and Europe, which clearly um, weren't relevant, but it's more, not just to mention the references, but to mention the point why it's there and the point why the standards exist was was more the, the point of the training. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it sounds fascinating. The um. The fact that it's on a boat as well, I can show, um, you know, not only dealing with hazardous areas, but, you know, electrical equipment on a, in a marina installation uh, and everything else. 
it is it, it's it's maybe slightly more complex i may have underplayed it it's, it's <laughs> slightly more complex than that but yeah, I'm, I'm generalizing it for the topic yeah, sure. of conversation <laughs> no yeah no i can imagine um so in terms of uh, your your role in the college then um i noted one of the things that you kind of you got involved with was new product development um so what what did that entail um i was uh, involved in bringing in new training courses that weren't there before for example yeah um yeah. probably um i suppose we could class them as a product could we um yeah. uh, but yeah so certainly during during my my first term there it was main, more maintaining the provision that was that was there um and continuing to grow and and, and develop that that model um when when i returned in a uh, later in, in 2019, um, I returned really to support the development of the team, but also to grow the provision. So um, I was involved in uh, increasing the Compex provision to include a, a, a design course, which is for design engineers to design equipment to exist safely in a hazardous area, so electrical and both intrinsically safe as well. Um, but also and it was something that as a college we hadn't done before, but was really, really keen that they looked at it to bring in the, the 2C91 course. Um, so it, 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 I say the college hadn't done it before. It, it was only delivered as a night class every now and again. So to bring it into more reachable uh, audience. So yeah, that, that was two projects, I suppose, that was involved in uh, developing material for and um, you know uh, responsible for delivery of mm. did you find during those i suppose the first and the second times during at your time in the college <clears throat> did you find that the uptake for complex was was increasing or decreasing obviously everybody kind of talks about the the skills gap um is that something that you found in, improved yeah that, that's a really good question um i suppose strategically where the college was located it was located in central scotland so it's probably 30 minutes from edinburgh 30 minutes from glasgow um and quite a substantial amount of industry just on its doorstep uh, at, at grangemouth you know the refinery the chemical plants and so on as well as you know being relatively local to to other industry even in the you know the west of scotland and in the borders and so on travel a bit further um so i think the numbers certainly in my time have maintained and certainly increased because you know and and you know i can maybe go on to share a, a wee bit about this later on but compex originally started as really supporting the oil and gas industry um but as you know more industries have have came to the fore um but also as awareness of competency has grown over the number of years in these industries um such as you know distilleries for example of which there are many in scotland um pharmaceutical plants uh you know flour mills you know food manufacturing that sort of idea these industries all now uh, create hazardous areas and and you know and have them certified so uh, or classified sorry uh, as that so they also need the training so you know maybe if it was just for one audience because of the decline in the oil and gas sector and so on i take your point 
I think that there, there probably has. I would agree with that sentiment over the time being a decline um, in those people coming through, although they do have to maintain their certification. So if they're still working in it, there is a, a five year cycle where the certificate needs to be maintained, Gary. So if they're still working in it, it will still need to be maintained. But for us and what we've seen was because it was not exclusively for that audience and where we were geographically located, it managed to capture a whole load of other industries that also uh, impacted and 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 needed uh, context to be able to demonstrate their, their competency. No, yeah, definitely. I can I can empathise with that. The um, obviously I, the ones uh, where I initially started and interfaced with Compex was doing National Grid gas. Okay. Um, and then it went on to production lines for various companies and bits and pieces, like you say, that were in the food industry slash. Uh, other sort of you know production line products and stuff like that that you buy on the shelves so yeah mm-hmm. I, I kind of get get your point there that you know it is developing wider and the like you say the competency is broadening to other sectors where it's applicable so yeah no I can I can definitely see that in terms of your your own like personal development then I understand you um, represented some external groups you know, I was just kind of wondering how that kind of came about. Yeah, again, um, a, a real privilege to be fair. Um, uh, we spoke earlier about my first and second time yeah. <laughs> going, going back to Fourth Valley. In between that time, um, uh, I took an opportunity in 2016 uh, to go and further develop my career. And I spent almost three years working at Ineos in Grangemouth. Uh, supporting their learning, development and competency management for apprentices, supervisors, graduates, engineers, that kind of idea. Um, and because they were a regular employer of apprentices, they were also a licensed centre, be able to support and deliver um, vocational qualifications. And they were a manufacturer organisation. They were invited to send a representative to um, an energy skills leadership group, which actually helped contribute to the shape or the future of apprenticeships um, in, in Scotland. So uh, it, it, that that was fantastic to see uh, other industries represented, how they managed um, their apprenticeships. But and and I don't know, Gary, if 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 you can tell me it's any different in in, in England and in, in Wales and so on. Um, but in Scotland, there is now uh, a wraparound structure for apprenticeships. So the original modern apprenticeship, which I did, and, and a number of others will will probably have done your sort of four years, if you like, uh, is now supplemented by a foundation apprenticeship. So um, that can be done in the last years at, at high school to almost give you a, an HNC to ready you for the technical knowledge you'd need for, for industry. And then once you've completed your apprenticeship, there's the option to go and consider a graduate apprenticeship. So historically, you know, when you left school and a number of people take different paths, but when you leave school, you either did an apprenticeship or you went and did a, a degree. Um, and, and almost never the twain shall meet. Um, but the graduate apprenticeships are really great incentive that allows someone post apprenticeship to use the skills they've got to then go on and do a, um, a graduate apprenticeship, which turns into a, a degree or an honours degree at a local university. 
So again, these were the topics uh, of conversation around that type of structure and how best to support the apprentices at that group. It was run by Skills Development Scotland um, and they are appointed by government to, to kind of look after what apprenticeships look like in Scotland. So yeah, it was a really, it was a privilege and a really great, great opportunity and a great insight. Uh, and a, how the mechanics of that is run almost because we take for granted don't we that an apprenticeship's there when we need it but you know for me it, 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 it made me reflect a little to say that actually you know this is what goes on behind the scenes to support that so yeah it was great to get a little insight into that it sounds really forward thinking I mean I can say <clears throat> certainly from my my knowledge of the apprenticeship system they aren't um such forward thinking as maybe as they are in Scotland. So yeah, maybe there's definitely mm. something uh, we can learn and implement in uh, England and Wales uh, yeah. in the coming future, hopefully. Um, so obviously you've you've now subsequently moved on and you're um, a business development manager with Compex. That's a that's a really uh, fantastic appointment to be uh, now working with Compex. Do you know? Uh, and again, uh, I do keep saying it. Uh, I think I. I try to be a humble person, but but I am genuinely privileged to, <laughs> and I'm going to stop saying that word now. But I am. Um, I almost feel that, in a way, and and there is a literal answer to this and uh, a, an actual step by step answer. But I do almost feel that the journey that I've started and the career that I've taken has has led me to here. Um, I think when I started my my journey as an electrician, I probably would never would have thought that I would have either been able to you know, support working in hazardous areas, I end up working for, you know, a company that is in that area to support their development and then, you know, go and and and, and represent, you know, a, a certification uh, scheme that globally, you know, recognises and promotes competency in a hazardous area. So, yeah, really delighted to join. Um, it's only, you know, the, almost at the end of my first month, so um, it's still relatively new. Um, but it's, it's a real shift. And again, you know, some some may look and say, you know, you're off the tools now, you're away from education. You know, I, I personally don't see it as being any less passionate about the subject or indeed more corporate because I've got a nice, you know, shiny title. If anything, it's the exact opposite. You know, the, the, the business is, a, is growing, the structure is changing in complex. Um, the direction of travel that the organisation is going, I really, really wanted to be part of, of contributing to, um, you know, growing and developing uh, competency, uh, as I said, and, you know, supporting, supporting industries to do that. I think it's a valid point to say that, you know, you'll have more influence over, over where it goes as well, not just um, implementing in the training, but actually influence of the industry. <coughs> And, and I did speak a little about credibility um, earlier on. I, I, I do think that's important. Um, you know, having came on this journey for me to get to here, you know, number of years as an electrician, number of years as being self-employed, you know, teaching electrical safety, you know, um, working for an approved training partner or, partner or a licensed centre, if you like, that delivers complex training to get me to here. It, it, it just feels like you know it's the right job at the right time and I hope to be able to do it justice. Yeah no brilliant I think one of the things um, I, I can't uh, not quiz you on is a little bit of uh, hazardous areas and, and what they are keeping it I suppose fairly light and not too detailed 
how would you define a hazardous area? Well, um, in short, I'd say a hazardous area is somewhere where there is the potential for a flammable or combustible dust atmosphere to exist. So a flammable atmosphere is normally aligned towards gases as such, uh, or vapours, uh, and combustible dust. Uh, it's probably some things that you would never think about being combustible. Um, you're more than welcome to go and Google the Chemical Safety Board um, Imperial Sugar Refinery Explosion in, in America, and um, a, a, a catastrophic explosion that happened in, in the States in, in the late 90s. And, you know, I, I always thought that the, the worst thing sugar would do was rot your teeth. <laughs> and, you know, you can see that, you know, un, unfortunately, um, in the wrong circumstances, um, combustible dust is equally, if not more dangerous than, uh, you know, a flammable atmosphere. But importantly, also, there is a source of ignition present. So if that, that atmosphere and a source of ignition is present at the same time, and if you go back to high school physics, in a way, all that's really telling you is that all the elements of the fire triangle are coming together. You know, you've got your, your fuel, your oxygen and your ignition source. And yeah, if all of those come together, it's likely there'll be an explosion or a fire. So that hopefully is a brief introduction to... No, yeah, um, I think a great summary. Um, I think one of the key things is how, how would you know when you've got a zone or, or a hazardous area? Is, is it just as simple as engaging with what gases, chemicals you're dealing with, essentially? And I suppose it's knowing the right time to go and engage with someone competent in that field. Yeah, so there is a process for that. It's called area classification. So ultimately, you know, if there is a quantity of material present, you then need to try and work out how long it's going to be present, you know, and will it come into contact with an ignition source and, and that kind of idea. So um, there's once you know that you're um, material, whether it's gas or vapour or dust, as an example, is flammable or combustible, then that process of, of understanding how often it's present and how long it's present for is really largely what determines the hazardous area. I know there are specialist kind of contractors that can, if you don't know, test and quantify the type of combustible dust you have, but there are set of standards in particular that go into quite a substantial amount of detail, well over 300 gases, and they've got all the properties for them that would be able to very quickly determine if your gas was hazardous or not. So there's a couple of processes that go with that, but um, certainly largely connected. In, ter in terms of zoning as, as well, obviously you spoke that there's some, you've got gases and dust, there's different categorizations, isn't there, of, of those um, zones relative to each? Yeah, I, I, and again, you know, uh, largely it's based on predominantly what I've said um, there, how much of the material is present and and for how long is, is what determines the zone. Um, so they talk about a, a, a grade of release, is it released continuously? For example, well, if that is released continuously or, or all the time, then that obviously goes without saying it would be classified as the, the highest type of zone because the, the product or material is present all the time. So these definitions are of them. So, for example, your, your gas zones would be zone zero, one or two. 
and your dust zones would be zone And those definitions around them are, are, as I say, largely based on, you know, is it likely to be present? Is it not likely to be present? And if it is present, is it for a long period or a short period? That's that's loosely based around the definitions that tell us how a zone is is is, is given its um, description. So there's obviously uh, categories of equipment then that you can you can install into those areas. Obviously, something you kind of mentioned <coughs> earlier was uh, intrinsically. So is it is is it a given that you would automatically just make everything intrinsically safe and limit the energy, or would it be preference to seal an enclosure? That would be great <laughs> because, yeah. you know, if, if if every piece of equipment was able to be intrinsically safe, it would make the environments much more safer because, as I said, they're, um, you know, low voltage and low current. So, so therefore, uh, not free from risk, but certainly, um, you know, limiting the energy and the current is going to impact um, quite heavily on, on, on the consequences. Uh, of 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 an accident or something happening. So, um, but yeah, un, un, unfortunately, depending on the application that you're that you're doing, or what it is you're you're trying to achieve, there is a number or a limit of uh, types of devices or products that are available for for each application. So, for example, if you were to, you know, uh, install lighting in a hazardous area. You know, there's specifically certified light fittings that would be um, certified because of their constructional capability um, and their ability to exist in a certain gas group or an IP rating. Uh, or as you said, uh, you mentioned the word category there. The category is, is nothing more than the relationship between the equipment and the zone. So, for example, I mentioned zone zero. Uh, one and two, there are categories that also exist, uh, which come from a set of European directives, uh, which are one, two and three, and there's a direct relationship between the two. So if you see a category on your equipment, you can relate it to the zone. Um, and ultimately, it just gives you that assurance that you've selected the right equipment, amongst other things. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's such a, a catalogue of um, criteria, isn't there? You've got temperature groups as well. Um... Yeah, it's it's a bit of a minefield, if I'm <laughs> honest, and that forms part of the, 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 the fundamental training really on on pretty much day one of, of every complex course to understand um, the subtleties and nuances around if I take a piece of equipment, for example, what do the markings mean? If you didn't know, it's just numbers and letters. But but you're right to mention um, temperature classes. Um, there are also we spoke about gases earlier on. Gases are put into group into groups based on uh, how you know dangerous they are or how easy they are to ignite, for example. So um, there are a number of these factors that need to be taken into account when selecting equipment. As I said, not not just a category that largely comes after the zone has been you know created or exists, and then once you design or install your equipment into that hazardous area, it has to match it has to match the zone. So yeah, that that does form quite a substantial part of the training and instruction um, around a complex course to make sure that you understand and can demystify uh, the certification piece, but certainly the the, the marking. I mean, it's been a fascinating chat. I'm sure I would love to delve into some um, 
some more on on uh, the hazardous areas. But I, I do have one last question for you. What's your favourite movie? I kind of guessed you would ask this. <laughs> um, and I'm a bit of a child of the 80s, I'm afraid. So, you know, I grew up with Eddie Murphy, Bruce Willis, you know, all of that kind of good stuff. Beverly Hills Cop, Die Hard, Big Trouble in Little China is a particular favourite of mine. Um, I, you know, I could have just not told you any of that and said Shawshank Redemption. Because <laughs> that appears to be the intelligent answer. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to go away because there's a real argument and I'd like to provoke discussion around it being my favourite Christmas movie. Shall I go with the original Die Hard? Die Hard, yeah. I, I would say it's, it's a Christmas movie. <laughs> Good, that's fine. It's the right answer, I think. <laughs> that's brilliant. I mean, do you, I mean, what about number two? I quite like number two, the airport. Yeah, I do. Th- I do think they lost a little for me after number two. But yeah, one and two are are are, are similar, um, sl- different obviously, but but similar in the way. I just remember Alan Rickman uh, and his, you know, effective body. Yeah, you know, he, yeah, he, no. he was uh, he, he was great. So yeah, it's one of, one one of my favourites. Yeah, no, brilliant. No, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. So uh, you know, thank you again for for coming on and um, telling me all about your your journey. You're very welcome, Gary. Yeah, it's 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 really been my pleasure. I really appreciate the the invite, and 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 again, wish you continued success with the podcast. Lovely. Thank you very much, and uh, thank you everyone for listening. <laughs>